Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Jed Rasula, author of the book, What the Thunder Said, How the Wasteland Made Poetry Modern. Jed, welcome to the New Books Network. That's good to be with you. Well, it's good to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, um, I am a professor at the University of Georgia, uh, where I have taught for the last 21 years. And before that, I taught for 10 years in Canada at Queen's University. Uh, I was a late starter in an academic career, which is to say I did not enter graduate school until I was in my mid-30s. Before that, I did uh, a whole variety of of things. I was a professional uh, book designer and typesetter. I worked in the book trade. Um, I had a radio program in Los Angeles. And for three and a half years, I worked as a researcher for the ABC television show Ripley's Believe It or Not in the early 1980s. That was the one hosted by Jack Palance and uh, Marie Osmond. And many of the things that I did on that program ended up feeding into the orientation I had uh, in my uh, academic research. Uh, I've published uh, 12 scholarly books uh, over the past 30 years. Uh, Most of them I would characterize as books with a literary component that is largely pitched at the level of cultural history. Uh, And that's uh, very much what, what the Thunder said. Uh, turned out to be. So what led you to write a book about uh, the poem, The Wasteland, and uh, T.S. Eliot's uh, composition of it and its legacy? Well, in many ways, it is the uh, culmination of a lifetime of interest spurred by my first reading of The Wasteland in Frankfurt, Germany, where I was going to high school. Uh, and, and I first read the poem in 1968. Frankfurt at that point was a city that still uh, bore the marks of the Second World War. Um, and so when I read The Wasteland, that is very much a poem depicting uh, the collapse of, of civilization, uh, especially in urban contexts. Uh, it, it felt like I was reading a poem about what I saw around me every time I uh, rode the tram into the city center and uh, went past large piles of rubble from uh, from the Second World War bombings that still had not been cleared up in 1968. So it felt like an uncannily familiar landscape that the poem was was describing. And and it happened that, that that coincided with a development of interest in poetry uh, as such, not just Eliot, but, but Pound and Eliot and all sorts of, of other authors. Um, and as a couple of years ago, as the centenary of the wasteland uh, began looming up, I, I realized that if I was ever going to write anything about Eliot and the wasteland, which I, for the most part, really had not, uh, in my entire career, that now would be the time to do it. And, uh, and that's the, the point at which I, I had to figure out a, a, a proposal for the book, uh, a, a way of, of envisioning a project that I could write without years of additional research, something that was based on uh, material that I was pretty familiar with already. Um, 
And so that's how the book came about. It, it is a fascinating read because it brings in elements that I must confess that you know, as, as someone who's just a casual reader of poetry, I don't necessarily associate with, uh, you know, uh, the, the wasteland or TSL or even poetry in general. And I'm thinking here about your uh, f- the first part of your book where you talk about the influence of two people in particular upon uh, poetry, and that's Richard Wagner and Friedrich Nietzsche. And I was wonder if you could perhaps talk a bit about what led you to start the book with those two figures and how they inform our understanding of the composition and, and, and uh, influence of the wasteland. Sure. Um, I, the, the, the practical point of reference uh, for T.S. Eliot is simply the, the biographical facts that he was uh, or could be described as a kind of second or third generation Wagnerian. Um, I, I, in a previous book of mine called History of a Shiver, The Sublime Impudence of Modernism, there is, uh, that book is an extended account of the phenomenon uh, understood at the time as melomania or uh, the, what you might think of as um, the disease of music or the uh, the anxieties induced by music, the gratifications and expectations awakened by music. And all of this in the latter decades of the 19th century was associated with the phenomenon of Richard Wagner. And and I say phenomenon because uh, Richard Wagner was a man who had very particular outlooks, uh, uh, aspirations, and accomplishments. But the term Wagnerism was used to describe uh, uh, the the cultural impact that he had. Uh, He was regarded and recognized by many people as as one of the commanding figures of the the 19th century, Uh, somebody on on par with Napoleon, say. And and so the whole cultural complex that... uh, came out of Wagnerism and, uh, and led to this, this phenomenon called melomania, uh, had a direct literary consequence. Uh, the, the English writer Walter Pater in 1877 famously remarked that uh, all the arts now aspire to the condition of music. And what he meant by that is, is that people writing novels, people writing poems, people writing, uh, painting paintings, uh, or producing uh, plays on the stage, were all trying in their own ways to figure out how to convey the effects that music was having on people in another art form. And um, the way in which this directly leads to Eliot is that Wagnerism in Paris in the 1870s and 1880s um, led to a phenomenon known as, as symbolism. Uh, not symbolism in the casual sense of this is a symbol of that, but rather symbolism with a capital S as a cultural movement. And it, it largely uh, emanated out of the uh, Wagnerian review uh, that was uh, edited by uh, Edouard Dujardin, who uh, is most consequential and most famous, if he's famous at all, for having pioneered the stream of consciousness technique that was picked up by James Joyce 
And Joyce never made a secret of the fact that he was uh, uh, profoundly indebted to Dujardin for this technique that he uh, transported into fiction because Dujardin himself was a novelist and and had uh, started working on ways of, of conveying the consciousness of people without all of the, the clumsy kind of he said, she said writing uh, that uh, is still familiar in uh, popular uh, fiction. So Eliot, as an aspiring poet, as an undergraduate at Harvard in the early years of the 20th century, uh, had the, the sense that, that English language poetry was kind of moribund. Uh, it was not going anywhere. It was it was sloppy. It was unoriginal. It was just a kind of slush. And he was inspired instead by the writings of French symbolist poets uh, who had, for the most part, been writing uh, 20 to 30 years earlier. And uh, the, the the kind of poems that he was working on uh, were consequential for him, but he knew that in the English context, they were non-starters. And so what happened is that he wrote as an undergraduate, the the better part of a poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And then on a study abroad program in Paris, he completed the poem, but he he put it away because the chances of of a poem like that being published uh, at that time, 1910, 1911, were virtually non-existent. And in fact, even years later, when uh, the poem was published, uh, it was regarded as a kind of a joke or maybe a hoax, or there was just something about it that seemed um, non-poetic or anti-poetic. But in fact, what Eliot had done in that poem was to completely coordinate the resources of French symbolist poetry, particularly from the French poet Jules Laforgue, and uh, and put it into uh, an idiom that sounded natural in English. Um, and this was the poem that when Ezra Pound uh, was given the manuscript by uh, Eliot when they met in 1914, uh, a couple months before the First World War broke out, uh, Pound was astonished, and he wrote to the editor of Poetry, a magazine of verse, a woman named Harriet Monroe in Chicago. He wrote to her with uh, palpable astonishment, saying, Eliot is the real deal, uh, and the amazing thing is, is here is a young American who has modernized himself on his own. And Pound at that point had, had been living in London for about five or six years and was had been hopelessly mired in a kind of antiquarian poetic idiom himself. And he was personally struggling, struggling to get out of this, this trap of, of writing like an aspiring troubadour or writing like a 19th century uh, poet. And so when he read the, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, it was a revelation to him because he saw that here was, here was modern poetry uh, and it was genuinely modern. And the modernity involved meant that all poets now had to kind of teach themselves how to be modern. It was not something that could casually be um, 
learned or assumed. And, you know, when I think about about Pound and Elliot at that time, Pound was born in 1885. Uh, Elliot was born a few years later in 1888. So these are people who are in their 20s when... Um, when the First World War starts. And if you think of the decade before the First World War and the kinds of technological uh, uh, innovations that were breaking over the bow of the, the young century, uh, the first uh, aircraft flight, the uh, development of automobiles, um, radio broadcasting was not quite there yet. That didn't come about until after the First World War. It was delayed just because of the war, but the technology was there. And then there was cinema. Everybody was learning how to look at moving pictures. There was a lot that was transforming the infrastructure of, of Western civilization. And of course, for all of us who have lived through the, the, the revolution of cell phones and the internet, the, the digital era, uh, com uh, modern computers, we, we can uh, imagine what it was like to have to go through a similar kind of self-education a century earlier in the midst of all of those things. And so right at the center of all of this extraordinary program of, of learning and, and, and learning what it means to be modern and how to be modern, how to use modern technologies, how to, uh, uh, how to just be in a modern city, for instance, um, poetry was clearly something desperately in need of, of becoming modern or of demonstrating its ability to recognize the increasingly heterogeneous world of, of modern life and to figure out, as it were, technical means in the medium of writing to uh, replicate those effects. And those are the kind of things that ended up, I think, coming to uh, a fruition with the wasteland. I was wondering if you could uh, take us a bit further into uh, Eliot's own life, which, which we should do in the book, and how it was that he, in effect, kind of channeled uh, the, this, this engagement with modernism and, and how this was reflected in the poem that he wrote. Well, the, I think the most accurate way of characterizing Eliot would be as an accidental modernist. Um, there, there were plenty of other people, like Pound, for instance, who were proselytizers for, uh, for the modern in, in the arts. Uh, Eliot was not against that, but he was, uh, unlike Pound, he was not a proselytizer uh, in, in the avant-garde sense. Uh, Eliot had no particular inclination to be a member of, of a group, uh, but he was quite willing to contribute to the group enterprises that Pound kind of organized uh, around himself in the years that he lived in London until he moved to Paris in 1920. But um, Eliot understood himself, insofar as he understood himself to be a uh, an inheritor of, of, of French symbolism and uh, a victim in a certain way of, of melomania and Wagnerism, um, he knew that all of this was part and parcel of a convulsive transformation of the modern world that had been going on since the end of the 18th century with the democratic revolutions uh, in France 
in the United States and then across various European countries. And uh, Eliot knew at some instinctual level that he was not a revolutionary. Yeah, he and the the older that he got in his life, the more anti-democratic he got in his his uh, political affiliations and his various commentaries uh, about it. Uh, he was he was someone who was a self-proclaimed conservative and and very much professed conservative values. So there you have a, a person with an interesting set of of professional and orientations and personal inclinations. And at the time that he had his closest alliance with Pound, he was glad enough to be associated with the revolutionary uh, and almost anarchist insurgents of of Pound and Pound's uh, friends like um, the artist and writer Wyndham Lewis in London. But Eliot also, and and this is kind of leading towards the composition of the Wasteland now, Eliot was somebody who uh, had entered into an unfortunate and ill-considered marriage just weeks after he met Ezra Pound, in fact, in in, uh, 1914. And the marriage was a kind of a bust from the start. It was clearly uh, did not satisfy either uh, the husband or the wife, although they remained married for decades. And the, the marriage turned out to be a kind of a, a torment for Eliot and an exacerbation of what he identified as neurasthenia. Now, neurasthenia is, is something that I write about at length in the book because it's, it's a crucial aspect of the story of, of Wagnerism um, and melomania. Uh, because it's, it is historically uh, contemporaneous with the greatest impact of Wagnerism. Uh, the term uh, neurasthenia was uh, invented by an American doctor in the 1870s, and, and he identified it as uh, a, a characteristically American disease. And even though people in Europe started to talk about neurasthenia and sometimes even diagnose it, it was still widely understood to be a characteristically American phenomenon. And it had to do, um, as the various writers and, and, uh, and uh, doctors who addressed the issue, it had to do with the unique historical circumstance of, uh, of the United States as a young country that was going through the constant convulsions of, of modernity and modernization to the point where at the end of the 19th century, America was recognized around the world as the kind of the leading edge of modernity. It's where, it's where automobiles came from. It's where skyscrapers originated. Uh, it's, it's a country that uh, impressed everybody as, as the country of overwork, of, of frenetic uh, displacement of instincts and observations so that everything moved fast uh, there was no time for contemplation, uh, but it was definitely a carrier of modern tendencies into the future. But the neurasthenia diagnosis suggested that there was a human psychological and even physical cost to becoming relentlessly modern in the American way. And so neurasthenia was uh, uh, commonly uh, was a very common diagnosis 
for all sorts of physical and mental ailments for many, many decades. And the astonishing thing about neurasthenia is that as a, a diagnostic term, it was eliminated. That is, it, it just went out of favor and stopped being used almost exactly at the moment The Wasteland was published. The Wasteland, the Wasteland was written by a, a, a self-confessed neurasthenic uh, during a period when he had a three months uh, leave from his work at Lloyd's Bank in order to recover from the acute uh, mental and physical uh, traumas that he was undergoing. And so he, he went to Switzerland for a rest cure. Um, and uh, it was there that he finally was able to address a growing heap of manuscripts that he had uh, been hacking away at over the previous year to two years, but they, they didn't amount to anything. It was just, it was a, a stack of pages that were not becoming the long poem that he aspired to write. And he addressed them during this rest cure. And then when he had to return to London to take up his position at the bank again, he dropped the manuscript off with Ezra Pound in Paris and Pound, uh, came up with a kind of a shape and an order for for the poem. And it's, it's for that reason that many scholars have, have thought, have written about this poem as, as one of the truly original acts of, of literary collaboration in which one person is the author and the other person it cannot really be credited with authorship, but plays such an, an outsized role in making the final product that um, that collaboration is the only way to uh, to speak of it or to regard it. So you have this. I, I like your description of, of the wasteland as as a collage poem because it works uh, on so many levels to describe the the poem that you that you present, and, and yet it's interesting to think about the 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 very fact that something is modern. Uh, sometimes can lead to its uh, rejection in some ways. And yet, as you described, there, there's this process that you see where it goes from being this, uh, you know, this project of the avant-garde that uh, eventually helps Elliot uh, uh, about two and a half decades later to become one of the most lauded figures in uh, all of world literature with the reception of the Nobel Prize. Right. Um, Eliot, or, or let, let me say a few things about collage. Um, first of all, as uh, one of the, the major um, issues that I tried to um, press upon readers in, in the book is that collage is uh, both a practice and a concept that was never applied to the wasteland at the time that it was published. And in fact, given the prodigious commentary by uh, uh, by scholars in the in the uh, hundred years since it's, it was published, the scholars never use the term or rarely use the term collage or montage to speak of the wasteland, and that's because, uh, at least in terms of the scholars, that's because the scholars have tended to be scholars of literature. Um, and my orientation is, is very much one that comes from the visual arts as much as from literature. 
And it's impossible for any scholars or any historians of uh, 20th century art to uh, not talk about montage and collage, which are some of the, the salient uh, original contributions to the making of visual art in the 20th century. Uh, there's At this point, there's a great deal of evidence of, of collage or montage-like activity in, uh, in written works as well. Uh, but it's not a topic that is as uh, comfortably or readily, uh, comfortably uh, understood or even recognized uh, in, in the literary world. And uh, collage is, in, in the briefest kind of characterization that I could make of it, is a way of making discrepant parts coexist in a given work. Um, collage is... is something that in the visual arts was, was practiced uh, originally by Pablo Picasso and Georges Braque uh, as components of contributing elements of, of Cubism in Paris uh, around 1908-1909. And then it was taken up with a real vitality by certain uh, German uh, artists associated with the Dada movement uh, during and after the First World War. And pictorial collage in that sense is, is a, a you know, very recognizable phenomenon now. That is, you have a page or something that is like a, uh, just a, a, a container in a visual medium in which a bunch of different elements from different sources are pasted together in a, a, a higgledy-piggledy kind of way. Uh, they're not coordinated to present a... Uh, an intelligible, intelligible sequence. They're uh, put. To, they're arranged on this pictorial surface in order to evoke a simultaneity of of different experiences. Uh, they're there all at once, but the the viewer has to figure out how to negotiate all of the elements that are put in play in this space. Now that's exactly what Elliot ended up doing in the wasteland. He didn't end up doing that consciously or conscientiously, though. Uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, he, he had a bunch of, of miscellaneous drafts of, of attempts at this long poem that he wanted to write. And the only thing that he had going for him is that every time he, he scribbled something down, uh, it, it didn't conclude, it didn't lead anywhere, but it often had elements that, that seemed to hang in the atmosphere like a kind of perfume, like, you know, there, there has to be something that can be done with this, but he didn't know what. And Pound enabled the collage organization of the wasteland to come into, uh, to become operative because Pound himself had for several years been attempting to write what he thought of as a long poem, including history. And the title of this long poem was simply The Cantos. And he ended up spending the rest of his life writing The Cantos that went on for more than 50 years. But at the time that he was helping Eliot, uh, put the wasteland together, he had been working on his cantos for uh, about three years, three or four years. A number of, of sections had been published. And even though he didn't call it collage, what 
Pound was doing was more or less collage in verse form because he was writing a poem in which a couple lines could place you in the midst of, of an ancient Greek myth, and then the scene would cut to some contemporary phenomenon, and then after another eight or ten lines, something else would emerge. All of this sequentially, but without transitions. The transitions would, was something that, that happened in an almost musical way, the, the same way that Wagner, Wagner's uh, music, musical dramas with their so-called endless melody worked. That is, that, that the music kept on going, but it, it kept going to more and different places. And it, it worked by the use of leitmotifs, that is, musical phrases that Wagner composed to periodically revisit, to remind the listener that while we seem to be in a completely different realm now than where we were two hours ago, say, um, the leitmotif is a reminder that the past is never past. It may come up again in a kind of circular uh, or periodic rhythm. And uh, this is what Pound was practicing in the cantos as well, the sense that, that things make an appearance, they can disappear, but they may appear later on and may appear much later on. And when they reappear, they might not appear in the familiar form that you might remember something by. It's not like reading a novel and seeing, you know, the character uh, is, is returning that to make a reference to Joyce's Ulysses, that Leopold Bloom appears in, in uh, chapter four of the novel and then appears in every chapter after that for a while until he takes a hiatus and another character steps in. It's not like that. There are no names for leitmotifs. There are simply uh, provocations, whether in, in a musical composition, uh, a pictorial composition, or uh, a composition with words. These uh, provocations that remind you that the past is not over with, that you're going into the future, but that the past is going to reoccur at points. And it's your job as the listener or the viewer or the reader to figure out how to make past and future uh, cohabit the same space. Now, the, the last thing I want to say about this has to do with Eliot's understanding of, of literature. Uh, in 1919, he wrote an, a now very, very famous and influential essay called Tradition and the Individual Talent, in which he made the, the bold statement that all ages are contemporaneous and that there is no improvement in art. Uh, and the, why he was emboldened to say that is that he had uh, just recently come back from a trip to the south of France, where he went on a walking tour, and he visited some of the um, prehistoric caves with the, um, the Paleolithic cave art there. And so he was seeing these, this work on, on cave walls and realized that this stuff is as good as anything anybody is now doing in the 20th century. And that made him realize that the real aspiration for an artist is to, is to recognize that the space that you need to operate in is one of the simultaneity of past and present. 
That's the way he put it in this essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent. And this is something that he adhered to throughout his, his life. That is, as much of the past as you can muster should always be present in your composition, but you also have to recognize that the advantage of being in the present is that everything in the past that you know is what they themselves who were in the past did not know about themselves because they were in a present at that moment. And the present for T.S. Eliot uh, in, in the period after the First World War was, to his understanding and his perception, one of chaos and anarchy. Uh, it was a post-war world. He didn't know where it would lead. He didn't know what was going to happen next. He was full. He was fearful about it, concerned about it, also fearful and concerned about his own mental uh, and, uh, and physical health. Um, and so that was the mood that he was addressing. Uh, but meanwhile, he was stuffing into the poem all sorts of resonances and motifs, light motifs from the past, from past literature. Uh, from past uh, uh, religions, all sorts of, and anthropology, all sorts of materials piled into this poem out of the confidence that somehow his chaotic present had to be informed by and, and provide some kind of access to everything that preceded it, this simultaneity of past and present. And... I mean, obviously, this uh, perspective that he brings and this art and this and this view that he is advancing is one that connected with with many readers, and, and I, I think that that context that you describe is, is, is so important to it. And, and, and it, there's clearly this line that goes from that you know acceptance to the acceptance really of Eliot as a you know as a uh, you know as a product of, of not just you know, a great your writer, but also a, you know, a, a, a titanic literary figure. And what I thought was especially interesting is how you contrast that with Pound's fate. Because Ezra Pound, who you know is a contemporary, a friend, who is uh, you know is is also you know associated with modernism, he has a very you know different fate in terms of what happens with him. His continuing response to to you know the, the world in which they live and and how that puts them in a different space i mean this thought that that this that you uh you know you, that you uh, juxtapose uh indirectly in the book where you know Elliot is 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 a nobel laureate and ezra pound is in a bug house <laughs> yes it is uh it, it's it's a story the the, the parallel tale of pound and Elliot and their lifelong uh, friendship and support for each other and alliance um, is is one of those things that that if you made it up and tried to pitch it as a as a as a movie as an idea in Hollywood, um, it would probably be regarded as as just too a little too precious, a little too uh, a little too convenient. You know, I mean, how how could this happen? Well, things like that do happen. Um, you know, the inconceivable turns out to be uh, biographically uh, ascertainable. And uh, in many ways, uh, Ezra Pound, I, I find a much more uh, compelling figure as a man, as a person than, than Eliot, because Eliot was a very buttoned down, 
personality was was really you know I, I, he famously uh, advocated for poetry as not the expression of emotion but the uh, uh, the the eradication of emotion not that that emotion is suppressed it's just that from his perspective it will infuse everything in in the poem anyway uh, through all sorts of backdoor channels uh, it, it's a way of acknowledging that the poet doesn't really have conscious control over his or her material uh, and and that that a, a power keg of emotions can lie beyond it behind it but that the the role of the poet is not to be confessional you know he's the opposite of a confessional poet um, so you know, probably the 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 only confessional line that that uh, that I would say Eliot ever uh, explicitly uh, came up with is at the very end of the Wasteland when he writes these fragments I have shored against my ruins. Uh, that really sounds very autobiographical, but it's also a very uh, concise way of acknowledging that the Wasteland is is a heap of 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 what he calls in the poem broken images. Uh, it, it's it's the testament to a kind of ruination. Well, ruination is what uh, uh, washed over Ezra Pound uh, as a result of his own actions later in his life. Uh, Pound moved from Paris to uh, to Rapallo uh, in Italy in 1927 uh, and was living there. Uh, until he was apprehended by the American uh, uh, military authorities in 1945. Because when he moved to uh, Italy, during his years in Paris, Pound had been increasingly both involved with the, the active art scene, uh, I mean, by which I mostly mean visual arts, in Paris, and he had also become increasingly involved uh, with music. Uh, he was writing operas. Uh, he was supporting musical events, and under a pseudonym, was uh, d- doing a lot of reviewing of musical events. Uh, and so he had that particular artistic world, and the literary world was kind of left behind in London, the London that he had lived in uh, for more than a dozen years uh, before he moved to Paris. But also during the Paris years, he was growing increasingly interested in, uh, in economics and uh, recognized, I mean, after the, let me backtrack for a minute and say, after the First World War, an entire generation of people kind of were aroused to speculate after the war, what in the world could have brought about this uh, catastrophe, this calamity, this this suicidal calamity of Western European civilization. And um, all sorts of people came up with all sorts of of accounts and reasons why the the world subjected itself to this this calamity. Uh, Pound was one of those who decided that through a, a kind of self-education, that economics was the root of all evil, and that that uh, economic motivations were behind uh, the, the the First World War. You know, the armaments and munitions industry, for instance, international banking and finance, and and 
these researches eventually infected him with the anti-Semitism that is, and certainly when he was originally doing this, uh, commonly associated with the banking, the international banking industry. And so Pound and Elliot both uh, were what I would describe as not doctrinaire, but casual, and yet definitely uh, confirmed anti-Semites. And when Pound moved to Italy, uh, he found as a kind of partial solution to the ailments of of modernity that, that he was diagnosing in his economic researches, a solution in, uh, in fascism. Uh, and he became enamored of Mussolini. He even engineered various personal meetings with Mussolini, uh, uh, imagining, I mean, it, this is a, a delusional imag- <laughs> a delusional fancy that somehow uh, <laughs> this uh, Italian uh, leader of the, of the fascist government uh, who was not a, a speaker of English could somehow understand uh, Pound's multilingual uh, cantos better than native English speakers. He somehow had this was able to entertain this fantasy that Mussolini was maybe going to be the ideal reader of the cantos. Uh, at any rate, this led to him um, uh, undertaking, at the invitation of the Italian government during the war, a series of radio broadcasts, uh, which were uh, heard in, around the world in a, in a way. And, and he was not asked to uh, speak, uh, uh, to commit any treasonous action against his, his homeland, the United States. Uh, but Pound uh, had, uh, let's say, a wickedly sarcastic tongue and, and also a kind of thespian way of, of doing voices that were ideally suited for radio broadcasting. And, and the radio broadcasts are uh, a kind of an, an abysmal torrent of anti-Semitism and screeds against uh, British and American politicians. And Pound just goes after anybody that he blames for anything in uh, a kind of maliciously ingenious way. And it's, it's as abhorrent as the broadcasts are, they're also incredibly... I don't want to say fun to listen to, but there's certainly object lessons in in how to how to put on a good show on on the radio. And of course, uh, all of this was being um, documented back in Washington D.C. And so, the moment the war ended and the Allied troops were able to move freely around uh, Italy, they apprehended Pound and uh, took him, uh, imprisoned him with uh, other prisoners, mostly uh, uh, people from the American army who had, who had either murdered people, raped people, or done some other um, uh, egregious act that, that warranted um, uh, their being held for trial in the city of Pisa in Italy. And it was there that Pound uh, was housed initially in a cage on a runway, literally an open air cage. And Pound was was 60 years old at that point, and he he underwent a, a breakdown, a, a physical breakdown, and a kind of a mental breakdown as well. And during the month of his uh, recovery from that, in detention, um, he he wrote uh, an installment of his 
cantos called the Pisan Cantos. It's about 150 pages long. It was published in 1948 uh, at the point that he was brought back to the, or at, at the point at which he was already in the United States and uh, had been uh, charged with treason, but then had ended up being committed to uh, a mental hospital uh, as being unfit to stand trial for treason. And the culminating event of this is that that, uh, that book, The Peas and Cantos, was awarded the Bollingen Prize that year for the best book of American poetry published in the previous year, the Bollingen Prize in 1949. Now, the infamy of this is that the Bollingen Prize that year was being administered. It was, that was the first year the Bollingen Prize came about. It was administered by the Library of Congress. So in effect, you have a, an individual who has been charged with treason um, against the United States, whose book of poetry has been given a, a prize um, by the, the federal government uh, for the best book of poetry published by an American in the previous year. That's like like I was referring to a few minutes ago and saying if, if you made up this stuff and tried to pitch it in Hollywood, you know, the, the, people would object and say, no, this just sounds too convenient. I mean, how many how many um, coincidences can you have and, and have it be believable? Well, this actually happened and it's an extraordinary story. And it's it's uh, one that, that I saw as a kind of a fitting parallel episode to the, the, the moment, which is the same year, that uh, T.S. Eliot wins the Nobel Prize for literature. Um, so it's a, it's a, a story that uh, cements the lifelong bond of Pound and Eliot uh, late in their careers, although both continued to live for decades after this culminating episode. Hmm. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I'm actually, for the first time in 45 years, I do not have a deadline in front of me. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, when I was uh, 23 years old and uh, was taking care of a uh, what turned out to be my oldest daughter at, at that point, I got an invitation from uh, uh, from William Spanos, the editor of a scholarly journal called Boundary 2, asking me if I would take on the project of writing an essay on the poet Jack Spicer because he was preparing uh, a special issue on the work of Jack Spicer, a, a poet who at that point had been dead for 10 years, but a collected edition of his works had, had then been published. And this is in 1975, 1976. And I, I took on the assignment um, and that was, it was a learning curve, just learning how to write a, a scholarly essay. I had no prior prior experience of anything like that. I, in fact, I didn't even have a BA. Uh, I had finished my coursework at Indiana University, but I had left to travel around uh, the, the United States and England with a friend interviewing living poets. And the reason why I was invited to write this article is that many of these interviews had been published in, in journals like the Hudson Review and, and Contemporary Literature and places like that. 
And so people just kind of casually assume that I must be a professor. And so I, I kept getting these invitations to write for these, these things. And uh, from that point to the present, I, there has never been a day in my life that I have not had a, um, uh, a deadline to complete a, a, either a book project or usually a series of articles or, or public engagements of one kind or another. So for the first time in, in, since 1976, I, I have no deadlines and I am on the verge of retiring uh, my le- next term, I will teach my final class at the University of Georgia. And um, I, while I, I definitely have expectations of continuing to do the kind of things I've been doing, I have no particular projects or plans. And that's um, an, extra- an extraordinary feeling. Uh, <laughs> that I, I'm looking forward to being able to come up with something completely unexpected and unanticipated and to have no encumbrances that will keep me from, um, from taking it on, whatever it is, or in whatever medium it happens to be in. Well, I, I look forward to finding out what that next project is when you come up with it. In the meantime, uh, uh, thank you very much for spending some Uh, of your time to uh, speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. It's a delight to talk to you.